Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long-term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode, Jack and I talk with Andrew Cohen about his experience in working for and investing with Bernie Madoff. Andrew, who now teaches students at ODU about investing in the markets, rose the ranks in Madoff's legitimate trading business throughout the 90s and also invested in Madoff's fund. Andrew appears in the new Netflix documentary, Madoff, The Monster Wall Street. In our discussion with Andrew, we get an inside look at the firm and the people that worked with Madoff and what ended as one of the biggest investment frauds in US history. As always, thank you for listening. Please enjoy this discussion with Andrew Cohen. Good morning, Andrew. Thank you for joining us today. Good morning. So you and I have known each other for a number of years. We actually have a, a personal and professional relationship. A lot of uh, investors that listen to us may not know, but Andrew is actually, um, he teaches uh, investing, factor investing at ODU, is considered an expert uh, in terms of the Bloomberg factor investing suite of tools. And him and a former PhD student who's now a finance professor uh, co-developed uh, investment strategies that we actually run as a firm. So we we run a number of strategies that Andrew has um, developed and is a strategist behind. And so I think we could certainly talk about factor investing and quantitative investing all day long, but um, today's discussion is going to be about something different, and that's your uh, experience in working for and investing with Bernie Madoff. And the reason this has kind of come full circle now, and it's always been kind of an interesting thing with with with, with of sort of our relationship. I never have never really known how sensitive you might be to talking about this, but uh, Netflix uh, released a documentary in December, and you're actually in the Netflix documentary talking about your experiences at Madoff. And so we wanted to have you on the podcast uh, today to talk about that with you. And we're fortunate that you're going to share those experiences and also what investors can can sort of, I think, learn from from this. Yeah, I look forward to sharing this with you. And I think what um, people will find is Andrew's perspective on his experiences and what he's learned from that in life are, are very interesting. It's not like sour grapes over there. Um, and so I think this is going to be a sort of fun and interesting discussion. So maybe just to start, if you want to kind of share, how did you get involved with the Netflix thing? Sure. So back in 2008, when Madoff was first uncovered, and they were looking for people to interview, of course, and uh, I had a friend, uh, John Stossel, I played beach volleyball with, who was obviously in the media, and he connected me with the CNBC people who saw me out. And so I was the first one, I guess, brave enough or naive enough <laughs> to be to be interviewed on national TV. So I was on the power I was on Power Lunch for about twenty minutes. I was a featured guest there and talked about my experience there. And um and so then when Netflix decided to do the documentary and they did all their research and so I was they found me and and uh, you know, I had I had as you'll see, I have a wide perspective in the fact that I worked on the legitimate side of the business, but I was also a victim in the Ponzi scheme and knew Bernie and his son. So I kind of had a wide, broad perspective and um, uh, to get it to be in that documentary. What was the period you were there for? Sure. I was there uh, from 1991 to 2000. Okay. So you're there for pretty much almost 10. Almost nine yeah, years. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. what was your, what did you do before you joined Madoff? What was your experience? 
So before that, my first job out of college was at Goldman Sachs. I was in their training program, their operations training program. I worked uh, initially on the trading floor where I helped support the traders, make sure the positions were accurate and so forth. Learned a lot there. And then I, um, while at Goldman, I was getting my MBA at night at NYU. And then I got promoted up in, into management in foreign exchange there. But I always wanted to go into the, I always wanted to be a trader after being on the trading floor and the excitement. So, uh, so that's how I started interviewing. Once I finished my MBA, I wanted to move on to become a trader, which I did. What attracted you to Madoff? I mean, we all know his reputation now is, is a terrible one, but back then it was very, very different. So what, what sort of attracted you to work for him? So when I, when I, I, I didn't really know much about Madoff, except a friend of, a good friend of mine at Goldman was friends who had a friend who was good friends with Mark Madoff and they and heard that they were expanding. And so I went over there and I saw that they had this young burgeoning trading floor market making business, which I thought was great because I had, I had kind of practiced a lot of market making through sports and NCAA basketball futures at Goldman and so forth at any rate. And that was kind of what I wanted to do. And I thought this would be a great place to kind of become a big fish in a smaller pond and move up quickly. And, um, and so that's what attracted to me. The other thing is when I started researching Madoff and talked to people in the community, everyone had rave reviews about him. Ironically, in my senior year, and I was um, taking a class in business ethics, and the business ethics professor was also very well-known in the community, great professor. I highly esteemed I looked up to him, and I asked him, because I had a couple of offers, and I asked him about Bernie Madoff, and he thought very highly of Bernie Madoff, had been involved with several charities with him, told me Bernie's a great guy, um, you know, very generous, you'll be at a good firm there with him running it. So, of course, he was fooled, too. But um, so, yeah, again, he came in with a glowing reputation. Yeah, that, that's one of the things I don't think people who weren't there at the time understand is like he had an amazing reputation. I mean, there was really no one who had anything bad to say about him. I mean, he was the chairman of the NASDAQ. He was widely respected. I mean, at, at the beginning, there were some people that were maybe starting to see some signs that something might be off. But as a person, he had a, he had like an impeccable reputation. He did. Yeah. And he did a lot of good things for NASDAQ and putting you know, electronic trading together and then the operation, legitimate operation I worked for was brilliant in that, you know, he got a huge edge being a market maker and listed securities that firms that were part of the exchanges couldn't trade. So he had this nice niche to the third market. He became, we were by far the largest third market player. We did about five to 7% of the New York Stock Exchange volume. So it was incredibly profitable. Having worked for the same company for 20 years, I really haven't done much interviewing in my career. But one of the things I'm always curious about is they say that these market maker interviews are really, really tough. And I'm wondering, like, what was the interviewing process like at, at Madoff? Yeah, so so it was an, it was an interesting experience. So when um, after I talked to Mark Madoff and he set me up with an interview, um, when I the first person to greet me was Andy Madoff at the reception after I the reception, and I was surprised because he was actually I was 27 at the time, he was 25. And so he was a little younger than me. He looked really young. So I was, I don't know, disappointed, but, you know, seeing this young guy. I, I, so I go into the office, and Andy was very professional and very stoical and disciplined. He asked me these different questions about my background. And then after about five or ten minutes, Mark Madoff comes kind of rushing into the office. And Mark was the exact polar opposite of Andy. Andy was very unemotional and and you know didn't show any emotion. And Mark was very frenetic and emotional. And to Mark's credit, he asked me, I thought was one of the best questions that if I was interviewing, I would ask. And he goes to me, do you like to gamble? And, you know, what's your strategy and so forth? And for me, it was perfect because 
leading up to that at Goldman Sachs, I had been playing a lot of high stakes poker games with a lot, you know, um, and I had read a lot of books on poker to figure out the odds to try and get an edge. So when I played poker, I didn't look at it as gambling. I thought every time I played, I had an expected positive expectation of winning, and I won a lot. Matter, matter of fact, it helped me helped me afford a much more expensive apartment. And then even more importantly, one of the exciting things that we did was we made markets in the NCAA basketball futures. And so when the NCAA basketball tournament began, we would all, and this is all on the trading floor, it was crazy. We would all start making markets in teams based on we had a theoretical value, like the team that won would be worth $350 per contract. Second place would be $150, and if you made the final four, it's $70 per contract. And then when the tournament started, you kind of had to figure out what are the odds. So a heavy favorite would be worth a lot more than, you know, a, a big underdog, which might be worth a dollar, whereas a heavy favorite like Duke at the time or Michigan might be worth, you know, $50, $60, $70. Anyway, I love that, and I figured out the odds, and I had a friend of mine who helped me with a spreadsheet so we can kind of, you know, uh, evaluate it and keep spreads. And I was I became the biggest market maker at Goldman Sachs in these sports teams, and I made, I made a lot of money. I also got in some trouble from it, so I wasn't good politically with that, and I upset a lot of traders, you know, winning money off them. But at any rate, I was totally transparent, explained my whole strategy, even how I used the kind of Black-Scholes model, you know, with, with some optionality with some of the teams. Anyway, Mark loved it. He basically was there five minutes, and he left. So, I, I mean, he, he figured, oh, this guy's, you know, I'm going to probably hire him. And he kept on with a whole bunch of standard questions. But I knew from that that they, I was certainly going to go on to the next interviewing process. Yeah, it's interesting. Picking up on the gambling thing, you know, when you, when you see interviews on CNBC and other places with successful traders, that seems to always come up. Like, they, they always want people that are good at poker or people that are good at gambling. So, obviously, there's a big, you know, there's a big match between those two types of skills. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's – and the big thing in there is the discipline. So – when you play poker, the best players play much fewer hands than the worst players, and they know to avoid mistakes. You know, if they have a bad hand, they know when to get out and cut their losses, just like a good trader market maker. Things are going against you. Cut your losses short. Let your winners ride. And, um, you know, and so there's a lot of corollaries there, a lot of the psychological element of the discipline there for sure. In the interview process before you got there, did you have any interaction with Bernie at all? Um, did you see him? Did you meet him? Or, or was he not involved at all? No, no, he wasn't involved at all. My, my, the, the final interview was with Peter Madoff, and uh, Peter did a very deep psychological interview. And it was a, Peter was a big talker, and he asked me a lot, a lot of questions about my family background, my friends, what I do. So he seemed to really, you know, get into the deep psychology, and um, and again, that went fine. And then a few days later, they gave me a formal offer, and then I had to decide between them and another firm, and. Um, I chose them because I I had another offer. Well, this is kind of a, another tough decision I had to make because my two offers at the time were work as a foreign exchange trader at a company called Revco, which was near the top of the World Trade Center, right? Which we know what happened in 2001 with 9-11, where I could have been blown up and destroyed and killed, or hire be work at Madoff, which was turned out to be half the business was the biggest Ponzi scheme in the history of the world. So I guess I didn't have many options, but I chose the lesser of two disastrous responses. So thank goodness I chose, you know, to work with the biggest Ponzi crook and still have my health, right? <laughs> yeah, no, definitely of those two choices, that, that was definitely the better of them. Um, once you got there, what did your job look like on, on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah, so originally I worked 
Andy Madoff kind of trained me. I worked for him. He was he had an account of about 28 to 30 stocks. He was a market maker in. These were listed stocks trading off the New York Stock Exchange in the third market. Like Pepsi was one of his bigger stocks. We had U.S. Steel. And so he would, um, he trained me how to use the system. We had to, at the time, before it got automated, we had to manually actually put our markets in our bid and our offer and move them. You know, if we started buying a lot of stock, we'd lower our markets. If we sold stocks, we'd raise our markets. And we would try to keep our positions. One of the nice things, even though we were the market makers and we had to take all the order flow, because we, we, we also had links to the New York Stock Exchange. So if we got too big of a position, we could unload it on the New York Stock Exchange. So we had we were market makers, but we had ample liquidity to manage our positions. And I would read all the news stories, and I would always alert him. I felt like I read a lot more reports than he did, and I would look at all the analyst reports and changes and, and so forth. That's when we eventually when Bloomberg came in, started using Bloomberg term in a little bit. But I would I was very just I would always get there, one of the first ones there, do tons of research, look at all the stocks we traded, try and get an edge and then uh and then become the you know and then help him with his markets and so I, I worked for him um for the first year and then i did really well and, and as time went on he would leave me to trade his stocks he would trust me a lot more and he would have a lot of meetings with bernie and that's how i first started meeting bernie and then he gave me my own account and then i had my list of stocks that i built up and then i had my assistant eventually i kept building up became one of the most profitable traders and i had two assistants working for me before I um, eventually left in 2000. Yeah, it sounds like market making back then was very different than what you know those of us who are kind of existing in the market today would think, like the citadels of the world with the high frequency trading. Like it was, it was a very different world back then. It was, it was. So there, where you know human element was important, um, you know, and the spreads were wider. When I first started there, the first few years, it was basically you had an eighth of a point spread. So you know you have, you know, twelve, um, basically twelve and a half cents to have a little bit of an edge in between your bid and your offer, which, you know, gave you a nice edge. Then they switched it after a few years to 16th, you know, cut the spread in half, but we did a lot more volume. Then eventually they started going to decimals. And that's where the edge of, I thought the edge of Bernie's business was pretty much almost gone then. And that's when I left in 2000. When, when people in, in the Netflix documentary, one of the things they featured was this idea of the two different floors. So you were in, I believe, the 19th floor in the market making operation. And then the separate money management business was on the 17th floor. Can you just talk about the two businesses and sort of what was going on in each of those two floors? Sure. And when I first started, by the way, it was the 18th floor and 17th floor. And then as Bernie got expanded, he bought the whole 19th floor. And then we expanded to this really Beautiful trading floor on the 19th floor. It's funny, the 18th floor is a little more casual. And I used to zip in on my rollerblades. I'd even rollerblade around the floor a little bit sometimes as a goof. Like if I did a good trade, I would, you know, or I would like walk on my hands or do some crazy stuff and Mark and Andy, or they would all get a kick out of me. I was kind of like a little bit of the trading clown too. You know, I'd do a lot of fun things. Then when he moved us to the 19th floor, it was this beautiful, pristine floor. And of course, I couldn't rollerblade there anymore. I couldn't, we couldn't, you know, everything had to be perfect. I used to, I think I used to have a fit ball I would sit on and I couldn't do that anymore. Everything had to be like black and white and anyway. But so the, the 17th floor was kind of hidden and I started hearing about this other business that Bernie Madoff had. And I would see him bring up these clients or they all look like these successful type of people and Bernie would show them around and everyone would kind of, you know, I'd hear little whispers about it and then people would say, well, you know, if you think this is successful, his other business is even more successful. I'm like, really? Wow. So then as I made more money, I thought, you know, maybe I could ask Bernie to him to manage my money because, you know, obviously I thought so highly of him. And when I asked him, he kind of made it seem like he would think about it you know, it was, he wants to keep it small and exclusive and 
But, you know, then he talked to me. And four or five days later, he called me over on the side and said, he's going to allow me, allow me to invest with him. But, you know, but that, you know, he doesn't want other traders or other people to get jealous. So just keep it between us because he doesn't want other people, you know, other people to know. He wants to keep it small. And his big spiel there was that it was going to be safe. Don't expect to make as much as if the stock market's up. And during the 90s, by the way, it was a very big bull market. And the stock market was going up, you know, 18, 20% a year for a while. So he was saying, you know, the, the big thing is safety. I'm going to make sure that you build your wealth slowly. And, you know, you're not going to lose money. And, we'll, you know, we try to get about 10 to 12% a year. And and so I thought, great. And then I, um, I remember the first time I ever went, I think the first time when I put money in, I actually walked down to check to the 17th floor and they let me into the initial room there they didn't I didn't see much but it was just an open room and I gave a check to I don't know if it was Jody or some someone there I remember giving her a check and then they gave me like and then she set up and gave me an account number and then sure enough a few days later I started getting these confirms of trades and so this was interesting and this is something where I might have a different perception and disagreement with about them never doing trades. So I got the first confirms I got were in what's called when issued trades. And as a trader market maker, we trade when we had a stock that would split two for one back in the 1990s in those days, right? It would trade when issued as if it was two for one. You could buy the stock ahead of time when it, when, when it would split. That's why it's called when issues. Let's take a simple example because I remember we traded US Steel. And let's say U.S. Steel was trading at, it moved up and traded $100, and then the company decides to do a two-for-one stock split. So in the future, if it didn't move, of course, we know stock splits are psychologically bullish, but so if the stock was at 100 then you would convert and get two shares at $50 each. So the stock, let's say that would be two weeks from now, would trade at a two-for-one stock split. Well, you could buy the winish, the stock as if it was split, because there would be a market in that. And usually that would trade at a premium to the underlying. People like to do that. So U.S. Steel might trade, let's say it traded 100, and let's say the stock went up to 101, and maybe the when issued might trade at 52 or 53. So the when issued would be at a premium. What I would do is I would short the when issued, buy the underlying at a cheap, and then have riskless arbitrage in a few weeks or so, your your stock would convert to the win issue. Now I'd have it at a lower cost, sold at a higher cost to make immediate profit. Could be anywhere five to ten percent, depending on on you know, especially if I could sell it in the offer. All right. And the first trades I got were just like that, except they looked reverse. It looked like I was buying U.S. Steel at the high price and selling in the offer and selling at the low price. So I immediately went to Andy Madoff and showed him the conference. And Andy, I don't get this. We're going to lose money in these. And he immediately said, No, no, no. You. This is the opposite. This is showing from the other side. So your buy is really your sell. And I was like, okay, that makes sense. And sure enough, at the end of the month, we made some money on those. And in a few months, these trades came in and I was happy because I was making, you know, a couple of cent per month. And I knew it and it was made sense to me. Okay. So then I went up and I figured, let me impress Bernie that I know what he's doing. So I went to Bernie. So oh, by the way, I understand the strategy you're doing. And I've done that myself. I like it. And Bernie does a double take. He gives me a look and I'll never forget that look he gave me. And he goes, oh, he goes, you know what? Um, that's, you're not supposed to be in, the, in those trades. Um, I'm actually, you're going to be in these baskets of stocks. And I'm like, but Bernie, I really like this. I'm, keep me in it. It's a good trade. He goes, no, no, no. I, we, we need to move you into the, in the baskets. You're going to be buying a basket of stocks, but don't worry. You'll like it. This is what I'm doing for my, for my, my good clients. It'll be fine. So, all right. I trust Bernie. And then sure enough, the next time I got a confirm, which was a, 
basically buying, you know, like 100 stocks in the S in the uh in the in the top 100 stocks in the S&P 500 and then we would and then of course the option trades would sell calls buy puts so it looked like a hedge strategy and i looked at it the first few months made a little money and after a while it started just becoming regular and i kind of got used to it and i guess hey bernie knows what he's doing he must have an edge he must be selling these stocks on the offer you know and 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 the trades went through london it looked like it was like in a london exchange so I'm like, all right, cool. He's using his market-making uh, business to kind of make extra returns, and I'm good with that. Before you invested, did he give you the track record at all? Like, did you get to see the annual returns? Or, or obviously, we know they were all fake now, but what he was reporting as annual returns? No, no. He just said that it was a, it was very safe, and, and, and I talked to – I had a few friends who also had it, and they said, yeah, it's very consistent returns. You know, we're very happy with it. You know, he's a genius and all that. So I had um, – so I, I had that background – that he had been doing well for other people. And so I had the base case that, you know, this guy, and I, and I knew what he did with this 19th floor trading floor was so profitable. So I figured this guy figures out an edge and he's, you know, he's, he's got an edge with this and I'll go along with him. Yeah, it's interesting how he was able to use kind of exclusivity here. You know, people didn't really ask a lot of questions. I mean, the, fa the fact that this was like an exclusive investment, the fact that he had this great reputation, you know, a lot of the questions people would ask about a traditional money manager, people didn't ask him because of all that. Yeah, exactly. He had, so if you think about his cycle, he, it was very brilliant psychologically if you think about it. So his model, it's almost like the model that Studio 54 used back in the, I guess, the 1970s. I was still a little young for that. But, you know, the model that Studio 54 did such amazing success is they would, they would make it very hard to get into the club. And they would even make people form this big line and the bouncers would be abusive to the people. They would even, like, I remember one story where, like, a, a fiat, you know, um, a newlywed couple would go in and they would intentionally, like, let either the husband, the husband in or the wife and not the other one in just to mess with them. I mean, they were so mean. But the point is, the, it's a theory called cognitive dissonance, right? If you're in line standing out in the cold trying to get into something and you're putting up with all this crap and waiting two hours, for you to do that, you must, to, to, to satisfy that, that club must be amazing. It must be such an amazing experience that you're willing to get in. And Bernie kind of did that, of course, in a very um, nice country club positive way where he made it seem like, you know, he's really almost full. He doesn't really want to let you in, but all right, I'm going to do a favor for just you. So you felt like you're part of the club. Like, I, like he made me feel important. Like I was a very successful trader for him. I had made him a lot of money you know, um, in, in the firm. So I figured it was like a reward. And now I can feel safe having my money with this brilliant fund manager that has some kind of an edge. And that's kind of the aura he put. He never advertised. He never asked. It was like you'd come to him and he would let you, allow you to invest in his firm. And it was, it was brilliant. Before you invested, did he tell you anything at all about the strategy he was using to produce the consistent returns? Or was he, did he keep that completely private? Yeah, no, he did. He, I mean, I, and I understood. He talked about his split strike conversion. What it was simply, he would buy buy a basket of stocks, right, and and then he would hedge it by and receiving premium by selling calls, right. So he'd get extra premium, and then to hedge it to in case it went down, like he'd buy puts, and of course collect the dividend on the stocks. And if and I and I had seen that strategy when I was at Goldman. I saw some people doing that. I assumed, okay, that he would time it well when. For whatever reason, for example, if the calls were relatively expensive relative to the underlying stock and maybe the puts were cheap, so I guess if there was 
you know, a little bit of a skew ratio where the calls were more expensive. And it made, if there's a, and again, sometimes a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. During that time, the market was going up. It was a bull market. So people were more bullish and therefore they could maybe, um, you know, they could push the price of the calls a bit higher. So he would do the reverse. And, and so I assumed he could make small profits like that. And I also thought that as a market maker, he had some kind of branch in London because the trades always went through London. So I assumed he would be buying these stocks on the bid right, and selling the calls on the offer somehow, and so getting a little bit of extra, a really good executions on it. Now, I thought, and he made it seem like it was very small. Had I known, and I'd done that, how big it was, then I would have known impossible. You know, if you're managing a few hundred thousand, a million, a couple of million, all right, you can do that potentially, right, if you time it right. He did seem to have good timing. A couple of times I saw him when Frankie Pasquale came and bought baskets of stock, seemed like when the market dipped, then it would bounce. But at any rate, so, you know, if it was small enough, maybe you could do it. But if it was, if he had billions of dollars under management, then I, then I would have known it was, a, he couldn't do it because then when he goes to buy these stocks, he, he would push the price of stocks up. So his average price would be much higher, his cost base is higher, right? Which means less future return. When he sold the calls, he would push the price of the calls down so his average sell price of the calls would be lower, lower return. And when he buy the puts to hedge, he would push the price of the puts up. So his buying would be at a higher cost and again, lower future returns. And he would, he would lose money, he would arbitrage away his own profits. So again, had I known how big it was, I would have, you know, like like Markopoulos, Mark, Harry Markopoulos did his due diligence and realized Bernie couldn't have done it. I wish I had taken the time, like Harry did, to have realized that. And I don't know how the feeder funds that were putting in these hundreds of million dollars, or at the end, even billion dollars into it, how they, since they knew they were putting this giant money in, how could they possibly think he could do that? But again, that's in part now hindsight, okay? At the time, he had me fooled. I mean, did, did anyone know about the assets and the strategy? Like you said, I mean, some of the feeder funds had to know there were significant assets because they were putting them in themselves. But was he telling people like on an overall basis, like how much money he was managing? Well, no, of course he, so you figure most people would want to brag about it and save a good returns. He did the opposite. He was totally low-key. He was so afraid of any news article or anything. He wanted to be behind the scenes. And now he made an excuse saying, you know, he doesn't want people to know his strategy, right? So it's like the secret sauce that's hidden, like kind of a black box. And so... I guess that would be that would be his excuse for not advertising, like it was small. So, so yeah, but only the people that put in the big money they had to know how you know at least there was a significant amount of money there. Certainly, small investors like me, I had no idea. What was your interactions with him like on a day to day basis? I mean, did, did you see him regularly? What were your impressions of him as a person? Yeah, well, I, the only time initially I would see him occasionally when he would go and talk with Andy or Mark. And I think when he first came, introduced me and says, Hi, I'm Bernie Madoff. And I shook his hand. I didn't, you know, I saw this, you know, middle aged guy. I didn't really know too much about him except he ran the firm. And then, but you could see there was tremendous reverence for him, you know, on the trading floor. I mean, you could see that he was the boss and everyone kind of, you know, wanted his. His sons wanted his affection, his approval. Same thing with his younger brother, Peter. And Bernie came out there, you know, he would sometimes berate Peter. And Peter, at the time, ran the trading floor. Mark and Andy were young. Like I said, when I started, they were 27 and 25. Eventually, they got the responsibility of running the trading floor, and Peter was the compliance officer. But Peter ran the trading floor. But Peter, you know, Bernie was way up here, and everyone else was down here. And so, 
you know, Peter, I mean, he would yell at Peter sometimes in front of the trading floor, and then sometimes Peter would yell at other people below him, but uh, but Bernie was, was the guy, and everyone listened to him, and everyone seemed to like him, and he had a good sense of humor. Now, here's a quick funny story. So, I don't know, I was there maybe two or three years, and we did, one year we did the Secret Santa thing to kind of, you know, it was for the whole firm, the people in the back office, the traders, everyone. And so there must have been, I don't know, 50, 60, 70 people in it. And they pick a name out of a hat. And who do I pick out of a hat? I have the fortune of picking Bernie Madoff's name out of the hat. So I'm his secret Santa one year. So, so of course, I, I want to impress, he's the boss. I want to impress him and get him the best gift I can. I ask Eleanor, his secretary, you know, what is Bernie like? What? And so she's telling me about these, these Cuban cigars or some kind of very fancy cigars he likes. I don't know anything about cigars, but I find out. I go down to this cigar store in Midtown, and, and, and sure enough, he's got this special brand that, that he orders. And you know, I bought the most expensive, nicest cigars in this nice box, and I, I was a secret Santa. And so he loved it, so he thanked me, and he was great. So after that... We started to become a little closer. You know, I, I certainly, even Andy and Mark said, oh, you're really smart, Andrew, to give him that thing. He really talks a lot about you now and, you know, really likes you. And um, and so um, I used to, one of the crazy things about me was, well, I was, before I worked there, I was a real avid bike, bicyclist. And so I would ride my bike all around New York City. I would even ride my bike to meet a, sometimes on dates, I would, I would, instead of, you know, I'd meet a girl and, and, you know, on my bicycle, lock it up and go to dinner or whatever. Because I was really, I was a fitness fanatic and, and, you know, I didn't have a car and riding the bike was a get, way to get around. So unfortunately, riding a bicycle on New York City was very, very dangerous and especially with taxis. And so I had a couple of accidents and Mark made have even joked that, you know, Andrew had his annual bicycle accident. He's in the emergency room now. So. After getting hit by the third taxi and actually being in the emergency room for a little while, I um, I stopped riding my bicycle to work and I switched to rollerblades. And rollerblades are actually much safer because I can go on the sidewalk. I just mentioned that because I would rollerblade in. And one time when I was leaving the office, Bernie was leaving the same time. I was on my rollerblades. He was walking to his, I guess, penthouse. And we had a nice – and so I, I stopped and just kind of walked with him. And we had a really nice conversation and, and, and talked. And so I got to know him a little bit better. He even one time set me up with one of his friend's daughters you know, to go on a date with. So, um, again, he seemed like such a great guy. I mean, he was funny. He was always super nice to me. Um, and you know, I thought, I thought, I thought so highly of him. You know, I was, um, if you had asked him about Bernie Madoff a day, the day before, you know, the news broke that he was arrested and asked me, I would have said, yeah, he's a great guy. Do I trust him? Yes. So he, he had me totally fooled. You mentioned when you, uh, made your initial investment, you went down to the 17th floor to deliver the check. How was the relationship between the two floors? I mean, was the 17th floor pretty locked down for those of you that worked on the 19th floor? Yeah, it was. They didn't, I mean, I had very little interaction, except with, I did have some with Frankie Bisquale. I can go into that next, but the people I gave the check to, they just would take the check, thank me, and I said, that's it, and then, yeah, and so don't worry, we got, we'll give you an account, and you'll get the conference, and sure enough, I did, and I might have gone down one more time to give a physical check after that. I think I just did interdepartmental, or later on, I would, um, I would, I forgot if I mailed the check or just came directly out of my account, and then when I took money out, like every quarter to pay taxes, I would get them, I always, never an issue. They would always um, send me a check a few days after that. So it certainly seemed legitimate as far as they never balked it whenever I took money out, you know. Yeah, you mentioned Frank. He seemed like a key, you know, in the Netflix documentary, he seemed like a key cog in the entire operation that was going on down there. Like, what were your impressions of him? Yeah, he was. So, so he was portrayed as this kind of option guru. And he was the kind of the option genius that helped make Bernie's strategy successful. He would know how to 
you know, he would, because he would do all these trades, nothing exotic, but he would basically, you know, sell calls on these stocks and buy puts to hedge it. And, you know, I would talk to Frank a little bit and he would go, oh, yeah, this month was easy, you know, the volatility came in. And he would use fancy words like the vortex effect. But when I did talk to him a little more, he would kind of be, he was always really busy. Like he knew, he was very smart. He was, a, I tell you one thing, he was, a, he missed his calling. He was a great actor. I mean, he played the part perfectly, you know, busy guy. You know, he didn't didn't need to spend too much time with us. And, um, you know, but, uh, you know, he had the right terminology. He knew enough the lingo to kind of, you know, make believe he he was an options uh, expert, and um, you know I didn't have, I I never socialized with him or anything, but uh, you know he was just portrayed as this you know options guru, and he was on the trading floor sometimes, and um, the other interesting thing I'll say that not in documentary or anything, but I know that when I first started, Frank DiBasquale would have us do trades. Now where those trades went. I would assume went to the, I, I thought they went to Bernie's fund, but who knows where they went, where he would come to us and ask us to buy, you know, a certain amount of a particular stock for the account, like U.S. Steel or Pepsi, if I was trading that, or Motorola, big, big name stocks, and we would buy, you know, maybe 5,000 shares of it, and we would try and buy it as low price as possible. We would then tell Frank all the trades we bought, we'd average price it, he would verify it, he would then take those stock out and give us the average price plus a little bit of a commission. So we would, that's the one time we did agency trades in a way. We did risk-free trades. We made a commission. Because we were market makers and we would take risks. These were trades for, I assume, Bernie's account. And again, I never knew where those trades went. But that also legitimized the fact that, all right, Bernie's doing real trades. And it also, his timing seemed good. It always seemed when he would buy these stocks, that the, it would buy after the market dip, and the market would go up after that. So that further, for me, validated Bernie's good timing on these things and Frank's good timing. I actually didn't know Frank was kind of put out there as an options guru. I mean, did Bernie use him like when he was selling the fund to in institutional investors? Did he use Frank as like this guy who was an options expert? I assume so. Again, I was never in the meetings when he sold the funds. I don't know, but from hearing back, and Frank would like if he if Bernie was worried about someone finding out something a statement. Frank apparently was incredible at on the cuff printing out those dot matrix statements to make it match what they were looking for. And matter of fact, there was even a story uh, I heard that you know they were looking for this information, and so they Frank printed it out. But because the printer came out hot, they had to put it in the refrigerator and crumple it up to make it look older. So I mean they were I mean Frank was very you know he was very smart he was street smart and you had to kind of fake everything but imagine this you get you got a deadline they're coming in and they print it out exactly as they needed put it in the refrigerator crumple it up so it looked like it was from a few years ago I mean you know they they uh, it's too bad they didn't use it for something good instead of for ripping off people. That was always one of the more shocking things to me about the documentary is this idea that they were, I mean, they were making all these statements. I mean, they were doing nothing, but they were making all these detailed statements for everyone that was showing they were doing something. I mean, it was obviously a huge operation just to even make the statements, I would assume. Yeah, I mean, that's why he had to have, and Bernie wasn't tech savvy at all. So he had his computer guys, you know, for uh, helping him. So he had a lot of people helping him to do this. And that's the amazing thing too, with all these people involved, that it, that that nobody talked, like it never got discovered until so late. So I guess he was also very smart at picking people that were really loyal and beholden to him. Because again, these people, a lot of them barely high school educated, were making a ton of money. Nowhere else could they make money. So they Bernie was the, you know, was the the kind uncle or whatever that that made their lives, you know, gave them a lot of wealth. That uh, so they had so he kind of bought their loyalty. 
Just one more for me before I hand it back to Justin. You mentioned you left in 2000, and I believe that was around where the Harry Markopoulos stuff was starting. I mean, had you heard anything about that or any questions about the fund before you left? No, not really. I just heard good things. There was some article about Bernie, which I know Bernie was seemed a little worried about, but it was more just taking him as this kind of um, you know, interesting character who kind of keeps things secretive, but it's very successful. Kind of like almost, almost like validating uh, Bernie. And I think there was some SEC, like a little investigation, because I overheard some things. But again, that was cleared. So all that, if anything, validates the fact that they're checking up on him. It's clear. The Marcomp. Now, in 2000, when I left, unfortunately or fortunately, it was a great eight years. Um, I wanted to get. As I was burnt out from Wall Street, so I went into fitness training, yoga, beach volleyball, you know, some environmental causes. So I was living the total un-Wall Street life from 2000 to 2008 and learning you know, things about health and nutrition and yoga and not caring about the market. So I was pretty, unfortunately, I guess, oblivious to all of the Markopolis uh, claims. Of course, in 2008, I wish I had followed it uh, when I heard about it, but I, I, I was oblivious. Can you just talk to what eventually was the catalyst for the whole thing unwinding? Sure. So, again, Bernie was never caught. The SEC, despite Harry Markopoulos basically giving them blueprint from all this, they never caught him. What unwound was the financial crisis of 2008, when people were losing so much money in so many other accounts, and they used Bernie Madoff's account as a piggy bank to take out money to replace losses they had elsewhere. And so what happened was, all of a sudden... Ponzi scheme only works if you can keep growing it, right? You need to have more money to pay the people taking money out. And suddenly there was a tremendous amount of outflows and Bernie ran out of money. And from what I heard too, he started, he had been a little more frugal, but I think he was, by this time, he was spending a lot more and, you know, buying big, uh, buying big yachts and houses and, and giving a lot of money to people like Frank DiBesquale and other people. So, but the bottom line was he couldn't pay the people taking money out. He tried to get I guess pick hour and some of the people to put more money in, but he just couldn't do it. And he finally says, well, my t I've had a good run. My time's up. And, uh, and that was it. And he turned himself in. So that's the amazing thing. Think about this. He was never caught. He turned himself in. And theoretically, if 2008 crisis didn't happen, who knows how much longer he could have kept up with his uh, Ponzi scheme charade until it imploded. Could have been a lot longer. He must have had this, just like this feeling of guilt. And like, I've got to confess. Yeah, well, the, the Netflix documentary made a very interesting point, which is, is very, which I think they had head on. So initially he had a choice of being a failure or being a liar, right? And being a fake. He could deal apparently with being a liar, but he couldn't deal with being a failure. And I think that was his motivation. Remember, I don't know that it was, say, the money that, that motivated him. I think it was the reputation or that... Well, there's Bernie Madoff. Everyone looks at him at the club. He was this superstar. He was looked with reverence for all those years. He was someone, that's, I think, his motivation. Like, you know, he's a success, which, you know, to prove to his wife and his, I guess, his wife's family and then, you know, his sons and everybody else that, you know, here's this success, this amazing success story, right? The, the, you know, the, one of the smartest people on Wall Street. You mentioned Pickhour. It was also interesting how close he got to getting caught so many times. Um, you know, there's that scene in the documentary where the, he's meeting with the SEC and he, he gives them the DTCC number and he gives them the counterparties. And if they had bothered to look at either one, he would have been caught. And, you know, on Pickhour, I think in like 2000, if Pickhour hadn't put in more money, it would have fallen apart. So it's amazing. He came so close so many times to being caught. Yeah, yeah, he did. Right. And he had, I mean, he got, he got lucky. He got lucky that the SEC sent, was incompetent and, um, 
And part of it, though, I, it was his charm that he, because he had such a great reputation, remember, even the SEC, you know, they're supposed to be unbiased, but, you know, they send these young people in. Bernie would, you know, they were in awe of Bernie. They, you know, it was like, a, you know, they, they, they probably didn't want to find find uh, problems with it, right? Psychologically, he would, you know, and that's why he was so good. But yeah, there's no doubt the SEC, I mean, they dropped the ball. They should have uncovered it. And, um, you know, it's, 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 it's a shame. I mean, they were incompetent. Once the scandal broke, there's two things with your experience. You know, you have like the, your, your sort of past experience, your reputation, getting, getting through that sort of, and, and the people that helped you get through it emotionally. And then you also had the financial clawback issue. So you kind of got hit, you kind of got hit like double whammy. It was like kind of, I'm, I'm just bouncing this off you. I'm not sure. Like a reputational thing. I worked with Madoff all those years and you kind of established your career, even though you weren't doing trading at all, there was like kind of probably that dark cloud that you felt over you to some extent, maybe. And then you also had this, you know, kick in the, in the clawbacks as you were taking money out from 01 to 08, you were withdrawing money. And then, you know, you basically got put in the lawsuit where you had. So I don't know if you just want to comment on how you got through it emotionally, your thought process, your perspective, and then also uh, comment on the clawbacks as well. Sure, sure. So, so first of all, up until 2008, right, I've been lucky. I'd lived pretty much a charmed life because I'd never been ripped off. Most people I knew were honest. It was great. I had a great family, you know, peak of my health. I had, you know, tons of money. So again, from 2000, 2008, I lived such a great life, you know, in Virginia Beach, doing exactly what I wanted. I don't know that I could have been happier, right? So I had all that. So then, so I had a, a nice base. Then 2008 happens, and I find out from all these phone calls that suddenly Bernie's arrested. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. All of a sudden, you know, a lot of this money I thought I had is gone. So that was the first kind of kick. And, um, you know, and then also the fact that I trusted this guy and, um, you know, uh, um, I was betrayed and everything else, right? So, so, so sure. I, so initially I was shocked. I was a bit depressed. And... You know, I remember the first few months, it was, I could never sleep. Like, if I, I'd fall asleep, I'd wake up middle of the night thinking, you know, why? What, you know, why was I so foolish? Why did I, you know, put so much money into it? You know, and, 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 and that. And then, but, you know, my wife was totally supportive. Um, you know, I, have two, I had two little kids at the time, so which were great. And so, you know, I had to uh, certainly be strong and happy for them. And, you know, fitness helped me. I mean, I did a lot of kickboxing. So I would like one thing that was cathartic would be, you know, I had this dummy called Bob and I would put like a Bernie Madoff mask on him and beat the crap out of him, you know. And so little things, I mean, that's kind of funny, but, you know, it helps. Um, so and eventually I got over it because, all right, I lost all this money. I'm not a big spending guy. I don't need a lot. And I'm going to get a lot of tax money back because I paid tax money over all the years. I'm going to be okay. It's fine, right? And then the second big, the, this gut punch was a lot worse than the first one because the first one, it's done. You know, you, you lose something, it's done, you move on. Then I realized, it's a shock that I couldn't believe it, but there's a clawback. And the way the clawback works, okay, is it doesn't, I thought it is based on a counts balance statement. I lost millions of dollars that I thought I had, okay, but understand there's different ways of looking at it. And so what they did was they determined it's not how much money you had or anything. It's how much did you put in? How much did you take out? Simple. What, so in other words, if you, let's say over the years, I put in a million dollars and over the, you know, all those years, what, it doesn't matter that I pay taxes with it or anything. If I took out, say a million and a half, they considered me a net winner and I would owe 
right? And for me, so not only was I not getting money back, but I actually owed money. And for me, that was totally unfair. And I said, and I had conversations. First, I got a demand letter, and then I, and I didn't even really care about a lawyer initially because I knew I did nothing wrong. I was like, look, I took money out to pay taxes. And there, I remember their comment was, look, we can't go over the federal government, but we have a fiduciary responsibility to go after you to collect money to pay the other people. So what they were doing, in essence, was having people that were maybe weren't big losers, right, to pay the people that were bigger losers that didn't take money out. So... So that's who I felt it was very unfair, but it was what it was. And from 2008 to 2017, I had this lawsuit hang over me, and that was really depressing. And so I tell you, I never, I don't know that I had a really good night's sleep from all those years because I didn't know what my, you know, I don't know if I was going to be bankrupt or what have you. And so, you know, eventually it settled and, you know, I'm, I'm happier. But that was, that was tough. That despite me being a very optimistic, positive person, everything else, inside, I was certainly depressed. To, from different degrees for all those years. And it definitely took a toll. Yeah, I mean, that's tough. And, you know, I think the net, the documentary highlighted people that maybe were in retirement that didn't have the means, didn't have the ability to, didn't have the money. It's like, where do you find that excess cash if you've already spent it, if you don't have it? So, I mean, that was, it's good that you were able to, you know, eventually pay it back and be done with it. Yeah, yeah. And fortunately, you know, I've always been a good investor in saving. So I've, you know, I've done well kind of making a comeback and without Bernie Madoff's account, which I'd done it myself before that. So, you know, um, so yeah, I mean, I've made a comeback and, and I don't live beyond my means. So, I mean, I'm fine. Right. And, and the, a couple of weeks ago, we were talking before when I was asking you to do this, you know, I, I asked you it was something along the lines of like, what do you think your money, how much, if, if Madoff wasn't a scam and you had just invested that in the S&P 500 or something, like what that would be worth. And it was some pretty big number. And, you know, what you said to me kind of was sort of admirable in the sense that you were like, you know what, though, it's, you don't need a lot to live off of. You don't need, so whether it's, you know, millions and millions or whatever it could have been like for you it's not really that important because that level of wealth doesn't wouldn't drive your happiness yeah i mean if you think about it's almost like the theory of marginal utility right now if you're struggling then when you get more wealth it does improve your happiness i know when i was i mean i grew up in the bronx and i, I remember I had to, then i moved to brooklyn and and i started improving my apartments and when i started making more money it was actually did improve my quality of life and my happiness but once you get to a certain point at least for me i don't need to drive a fancy car or have a boat or any of that stuff so you know once you get to a certain point i don't think the money really does anything for happiness and that's our ultimate goal and um so you know i mean look i'm comfortable i'm not complaining yeah, do I have a lot less millions than I would have had if I didn't invest in Bernie? Sure, but I don't think in the long run it really matters to happiness at all. Do you did this experience at all impact your um, decision to become a, a teacher? Um, and I guess you know what you've kind of developed into. You are a market maker, but now you're really an expert on quantitative and factor investing. So, you know, how did that? I guess did that at all shape your decision to go? Uh, and teach. And then it's obviously a very different type of investing style than what you were doing, you know, at Madoff. Yeah. So I, so it's funny when I, um, I had taught an MBA class uh, back in 2001 when I first moved here and I enjoyed it. And then I was busy doing other stuff. And when ODU opened up the trading room, they had, they opened up this beautiful Bloomberg trading room with uh, 24 Bloomberg terminals and they were looking to hire someone. 
And when I saw the trading room and to give back, I, I, to be honest, I wasn't sure how I would like teaching. And I remember the dean. I told the dean, said, look, I'm going to be honest with you. I have no idea how I'm going to like this. I might, I said, I'm, I'm a person that's usually all in or not in at all. Like, you know, I either, that's why I quit trading because eventually I got burnt out from it. So I'm going to either be, you know, I'm going to be one of your best professors, teachers, whatever, ever, or I'm going to quit in like six or nine months. I just want to let you know that. And he was fine. And, and, and I ended up loving teaching. It's so much, you know, so much better than being on Wall Street as far as the whole psychological element of it here. You know, when I was on Wall Street, I'm trying to make as much money as possible. That's my goal as a trader market maker. Here, I'm imparting knowledge. I'm trying to give to people, give them knowledge to help improve their lives and, um, and learn and learn as much myself about it. So I've loved teaching here and, um, and it's been a great experience. That also helped me get through it when I, when I started teaching here in 2011. You know, that, um, that definitely helped me psychologically. And, um, and, you know, I've been doing it now 11 years, and I still love it. I think I'm just excited coming in to teach my students today as I was 10 years ago. It's always something new to learn. And then also, you know, evolving before when I was more into short-term trading, looking for edges, looking at short-term reports, and now looking more long-term uh, perspective, looking at various factors, you know, value factors, quality factors, momentum factors, what has it be, to try to beat the market in the long term and teaching my students that it's great. It's so much fun and um yeah, and I love it. So um you know, so I I'm very happy now, you know, the, and, and I look back at that experience and um you know it's behind me and I feel good. You know, one of the also exciting things I did that from all my experiences I created a game called playfuturetraders.com where Students get the experience of kind of being a market maker like I was at Madoff, reacting to news and everything else in a very fun, fast environment. So if you don't mind putting it out there, uh, it's uh, www.playfuturetraders.com. And people can go on there and demo it and practice it for free. And then if they're interested in trying it out more, because eventually I want to expand it to, you know, expand this knowledge to students from all around the country and around the world. What do you think the biggest lesson the average investor can learn from the the Madoff situation. Sure. So, a big a big lesson is that um, don't rely on other people. Look at other people's thoughts. Really try to be objective, and um, and and analyze something. Analyze something yourself. Make sure you 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 have a system to kind of make whatever you're evaluating to be objective just like right now like like what you guys do right with with um with your portfolio what i do when i pick or value a stock i don't oh i like the name it's cool i see you know i'm excited about no i value it now because of the ratios of the numbers right what is its you know what is its earnings what is it you know what are all the numbers and and it's important to evaluate all your investments like that and if you had done it very systematically like harry markopoulos did right if you'd be like harry markopoulos you know, you won't, you'll figure these things out and won't get ripped off. So that's the thing. Have a disciplined, objective system in everything you do, whether whether evaluating a hedge fund manager, whether investing for yourself, right? That's really important. Kind of like what you guys do, what I do, systematic investing. Well, Andrew, thank you very much for joining us and sharing this uh, story uh, with us. You're on the Netflix documentary. Um, again, people can check it out on Netflix. I can almost guarantee you that this podcast episode will have probably uh, less than 1% of the views that the Netflix documentary had just because I, <laughs> I do know at one point it was like the, it was one of the most watched uh, things on Netflix. But anyways, we appreciate you, uh, you know, coming on with us today. And um, 
we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, always great talking to you, and I'm looking forward to seeing this. And also, I, as you know, I listen or watch all of your Excess Return podcasts. I think you guys do an amazing job, and I'm glad that I'm part of it. Hi, guys. This is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at @practicalquant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.